Hey, good morning. Getting everything set up. I'll be live in just a, well, I am live. I'll start the show in just a moment. All right. I think I'm ready. Let's do it. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. This is Just Human number 188. It is Wednesday. I hope you're having a good one. We have much to talk about, uh, but first, before we get to the news that I want to go over today, um, I want to tell you that there will not be a show on Friday. After this show, I've got a couple errands to run, and then me and the family are headed out of town. Um, my wife's got a conference for work that she's going to. And things have just worked out that it made sense for us to go with her as a family. Um, so looking forward to it. Short little road trip. And uh, then a few nights in a hotel with my kids. Wish me luck. Hopefully they have good coffee where we're going. Or at least I'll have access to it. Or else I'll be really grumpy every day. Um, but should be nice to get away for a short time. Um, I won't be on the Devolution Power Hour tonight because I'll be out of town. I was. I, I don't. I don't have any... I don't know that I would be able to stream from where I'm going to be at. Um, normally when I, I would stream, try to stream from the hotel, but I'm going to be in a room with my kids. So they're not going to want to listen to me do the Devo power hour while they're trying to sleep. Um, so anyway, no show Friday. So I have this show today and I'm going to go over what I can um, or what I, what I think is important so far. There's been a ton of, of just, there's a ton of important news going on. It's hard to pick out what, 
to cover. Uh, but I've done my best to select for that. Um, another thing, and uh, good morning, UK Neil. Thank you for the Rumble rant. Um, we're going to look back just a little bit to uh, some news from Monday, some things that we were talking about. And then we're talking about drone incident and Credit Suisse and then a few other things here and there. Um, if you enjoy what I do, if you like if you like this show, if you like the content that I put out, then share it. That's the best way to support the show. Hit the thumbs up over on Rumble. Share the show with people you think would also enjoy it. Um, but if you want to do more than that, there are the best ways, the absolute best ways, are to go to buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman and make sure my coffee cup stays full. I need caffeine in order to do this. And uh, the other way is to go to justhuman.substack.com and sign up. It's free. Everything I do is free. But Substack is the best way to support the work that I do. I do an occasional article there, um, usually a deeper dig on something. And uh, if you like that, that's where you can get the content. That's where you can also get the podcast. Um, I do. I After the show is done, I always put out a podcast version a few hours later. Um, but a paid subscription on Substack or buy me a coffee. Those are the two best ways to support what I do. Third best. And the way that you get something sweet in return is to go to BensonHoneyFarms.com. Use rep code just human and get yourself some fresh raw honey direct from the beekeepers. All the links for all of my stuff are in the description of rumble and in my link tree that's on all of my social media. So you get, it's easy to find. All right. With that out of the way, Let's that is the wrong button. There we go. Let's hit the wrong button first, and then let's go to the news for today. <laughs> Flying storm. Thank you very much for the rumble rant. They said, Mr. Mom, you're a good, decent man. Stay on the research. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, I am a, uh, I am a Mr. Mom. (laughs) It's, I can't deny it. I, that's, that's where I'm at, but I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy about it because there was, there was quite a few years there where I was, uh, consumed at a, at a different job and it took me away from the kids and the wife. So I, to be honest with you, I feel like I had some, I had some years doing that. And then things have come back around where even though I'm Mr. Mom, um, I actually kind of like it because now I get now I get to spend all that good time with my kids and be involved in their lives more more than I could be uh, just a few years ago. Definitely don't take it for granted. All right. So. These may be a little bit out of order. Um, and we have more news today. I see before I go live, we have more Credit Suisse news. Uh, so Credit Suisse, as we talked about, and as I covered on Monday's show, they're in trouble. And this is the swamps. This is the international swamps. Favorite bank. Uh, they have over a trillion dollars in assets. This is a massive, massive bank with lots of hidden accounts from nefarious people. And they are in trouble. The cost of insuring bonds of Credit Suisse Group against default climbed to the highest on record as the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank sparked concern about broader contagion. There's that word again in the banking industry. 
Five-year credit default swaps for the Zerk-based lender jumped as much as 44 basis points on Monday to 446. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows. They are in trouble. The stock tumbled as much as much as 15% to a fresh record low. They're trading at just over $2 a share. Even more interesting and also part of why the stock is falling and why that insurance is going up. Right here, Credit Suisse Group said it had identified, quote, material weaknesses in its reporting procedures for the financial years 2022 and 2021 and is adopting a remediation plan. For the two years, quote, the group's internal control over financial reporting was not effective, Credit Suisse said in its annual report released Tuesday. So kind of a kind of a double hit here where the problems going on with Signature Bank, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, um, and Silvergate, but specific, mostly Silicon Valley Bank. Their collapse drove Credit Suisse and all other banks down anyway. But on Tuesday, Credit Suisse also had to release this report saying, yo, we got some problems. Quote, management has also accordingly concluded that our disclosure controls and procedures were not effective. In other words, they're screwed up. This is corporate speak for uh, we have some major problems with reporting and disclosure and procedures. It's bad. The bank was forced to delay the release of its annual report from last week after U.S. regulators raised last-minute queries. Credit Suisse didn't specify whether those had been resolved. The material weaknesses identified relate to the failure to design and maintain effective risk assessments in its financial statements. That is more very careful language to let you know we are not sound. We are not on sound footing right now. It's it's bad. PwC, the independent registered public accounting firm that audited the financial statements for the year ended 30, December 31st, 2022, included in its annual report, has issued an adverse opinion. In other words, you guys ain't good on the effectiveness of the group's internal control over financial reporting as of December 31st, 2022. This is bad. This right here, just those lines right there, drove this stock way down. And before I get to that article, I told you some of this is going to be out of order, but that's how it's going to be right now. Um, I think I got this. Okay. There's one more report on Credit Suisse. Let me grab it. Where did you go? Where did you go? Is it here? Yes. Just a moment. Credit Suisse sees shares plunged 30% this morning. Credit Suisse shares plunged over 30% to new record lows Wednesday after its main shareholder said it would not provide more financial assistance to the embattled Swiss banking giant. It's now down to 1.565 Swiss francs. Credit Suisse shares plunged more than 20%. Now it's 30%. Switzerland's second biggest bank, shaken by a series of scandals, 
was rocked once again after Saudi National Bank Chairman Amar al-Qudari said it would, quote, absolutely not up at stake as the European stock market plunged amid renewed concerns about the banking sector. Oh, man. This This is like, I seriously have this anxiety of things are going to be rough, but it's going to be good. But it's going to be rough (laughs) for a little while because this is bad. Currently at 1.96 US dollars. Like I said, Credit Suisse, uh, it's the International Swamp's favorite bank because they could hide their money there. Um, one point something trillion in assets. It's a, it's a massive amount. What is it? One point. I just wrote it yesterday in the, uh, Badlands brief, 1.29 trillion in assets under management. I wrote in the Badlands brief from, uh, badlands.substack.com. We do a, uh, a short Substack every morning. It goes out every morning. From a couple of us in Badlands where um, we grab a, co- a few news stories that we think are important and we give some commentary on them. Just a, just a quick little blurb on these news stories that we've picked out. And uh, what I wrote about this, about Credit Suisse, was that if Credit Suisse goes under, that actually is a real catastrophic event to their systems. Um, all right. Back to SEC, back to Silicon Valley Bank, though. This is probably the most important one, but before I get to that, I want to point out KPMG, which is one of the uh, auditing companies out there, the big ones, gave Silicon Valley Bank a clean audit report 14 days before it collapsed. It blessed Signature Bank's books 11 days before. Did they fail overnight or was it a long time coming? Or did KPMG give them a clean bill of health, these two banks, before they collapsed because they were trying to save them? They were trying to prop them up by saying, oh, it's okay. They're good. They're good. Something else. Goldman Sachs. Now, remember we talked about how Peter Thiel pulled all of his money out of Silicon Valley Bank just before they collapsed. And he not only just pulled it out, he made sure that all of the, his investors knew he was pulling it out. He put out a, he put out a, a, a statement and sent a, a, a statement and a notification or whatever and issued it to all the people that are part of his founders fund and said, by the way, we just want to let you know we have no, we no longer have any money with Silicon Valley Bank, which is another way of saying, Silicon Valley Bank isn't where we we don't trust them to have our money. We pulled everything out, which triggered the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. But now we've also learned that Goldman Sachs bought more than $21 billion worth of securities sold by Silicon Valley Bank last week, a transaction that triggered the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, according to the Financial Times. So both – I'm, I'm looking at that. And I'm like, well, that's – Goldman Sachs is a is a swampy bank. Did they did they do that? 
hoping it would fail or did they do it because they were concerned about it? And then Peter Thiel made sure that the bank collapsed. Um, it's interesting that both of them, that Goldman Sachs and Peter Thiel both made these moves uh, right before the bank collapsed. And both of those moves put Silicon Valley bank in jeopardy, um, which it already was, but those moves really, I mean, those are right before, I mean, that that's done. That's that killed it right there. And then this morning we learn California governor, Gavin Newsom lobbied the white house and treasury on the bailout of Silicon Valley bank without disclosing that his private wineries had reportedly been the bank's clients. And he may have been, he may have had a personal account at the bank, according to the intercept. Oops. Oops. All right. Now the biggest news I have for you related to Silicon Valley bank Shout out to Karma Patriot for uh, picking this out off of Fox News. I went and found the Wall Street Journal article, and sure enough, Justice Department and SEC are investigating Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Probes include examining executive shares sales before the bank's failure. Heck yeah. The Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission are investigating the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, according to people familiar with the matter, after the California lender was taken over by regulators last week amid a historic run of deposits. The separate probes may not lead to charges or allegations of wrongdoing. Of course, they may not. But prosecutors and regulators often open investigations after financial institutions or public companies suffer big, unexpected losses. Shares in SVB Financial Group, which formerly owned the bank, fell 60% last week and have been stopped from trading since Friday. The investigations are also examining stock sales that SVB Financial's officers made days before the bank failed. That right there is the, that's the big one. That's a big one. The Justice Department probe involves the department's fraud prosecutors in Washington and San Francisco. SVB Financial Chief Executive Greg Becker didn't return a phone call message seeking comment. The company's Chief Financial Officer, Daniel Beck, didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. Spokesman for the San Francisco U.S. Attorney's Office and the Justice Department's Criminal Division in Washington declined to comment. An SEC spokesman, spokes, spokeswoman also declined to comment. Before SVB failed last week and was taken over by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, FDIC, it catered mainly to the insular world of startups and the investors who fund them. Its deposits boomed alongside the tech industry, rising 86% in 2021 to $189 billion. The bank fell victim last week to a run of deposits. Customers tried to withdraw $42 billion, which is about a quarter of the bank's total deposits on Thursday alone. The flood of withdrawals destroyed the bank's finances. It had poured large amounts of deposits into U.S. Treasuries and other government-sponsored debt securities, whose market value declined as the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates over the past year. SVB cautioned 
or SVB Financial, cautioned in its latest annual report to investors that its business was heavily focused on lending to newer companies in the technology, life science, and healthcare industries. Blah, 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 blah. Security filings show Mr. Becker and Mr. Beck, the chief financial officer, both sold shares the week before the bank collapsed. Mr. Becker exercised options on 12,451 shares on February 27th and sold them the same day, netting about $2.3 million. Mr. Beck sold over $575,000 worth of share also on February 27th, roughly one-third of his holdings in the company. Both sales were done under so-called 10B51 plans about 30 days earlier. These plans allow insiders to schedule share sales in advance to allay suspicion of trading on non-public information. The SEC recently tightened rules for those plans, which include a 90-day waiting period before sales can be executed. The new sales went into effect on fe- fe- the new rules went into effect on February 27th, the same day that they sold their shares. SVB was the 16th largest bank in the U.S. with some $209 billion in assets. So just think about what SVB has done to the market this week or from last week to this week. Think about what the impact was of a bank with $209 billion in assets failing. Now think about how Credit Suisse is six times as big as that as far as assets. That changed. Wait, 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 wait. It's collapsed. The second biggest bank failure in history set off a cascade that threatened to start to down startups and other companies, blah, blah, blah. Didn't see having access to their cash. That changed when Treasury Department and banking regulars announced they would guarantee all of SVB's deposits. SPB Financial no longer controls Silicon Valley Bank. Karma Patriot and I both received a lot of blackpilling over posting this on a certain website. And, but here we are over here laughing and smiling because I don't think, I, I don't think SVB collapsed just because some people took their money out. I don't think it collapsed just because Peter Thiel and Goldman Sachs took their stuff out. I think it collapsed because they're also under investigation. Not just this right here, um, which is, this is brand new news, but I think there's other investigations going on. I think they were already under the eye of investigators and regulators. And I think that um, the Epstein, the Epstein cases aren't going to, aren't going to do them any good or weren't um, and still aren't. And yeah, Iowa Trump, I agree with you. Good morning. The SVB board is going to get sued into oblivion. Um, Jason, that's right. Also the, the big tech implosions, all the, all the tech companies that are having so much trouble and are cutting jobs. This company catered, this bank catered to super rich venture capitalist woke businesses. And so many of them are in trouble. I mean, there's this trouble all the way all the way around for Silicon Valley Bank, plus decoupling from China, 
And as you guys probably saw, but I'm going to highlight it, highlight it again. I wrote this after the show on Monday that just for your consideration, just this is my end point on this, on this subject matter. SVB is massively invested in China and has joint ventures with them. They were recently subpoenaed in the U.S. Virgin Islands Epstein case. They are woke AF, Choice Bank of failing tech oligarchs, and they're connected to the Russian swamp as well. So SVB is in the Silicon Valley, Chinese, and Russian swamps all at the same time. Silvergate Bank was crypto crooked. And we have tons of crypto bust going on because there's so much criminality involved with crypto. Signature Bank had Barney Frank on its board and is connected to the FTX scandal. So those two were already going down for their own reasons. The draining of the Russian swamp, which is happening right now under the guise of task force klepto capture, which I've been detailing on this show and been getting more and more convinced about. And the decoupling, decoupling from China, which has been happening since Trump's first term, plus the interest rates going up, plus Moody's downgrading SVB, set SVB and a number of other banks upon the pyre. Then Trump ally Peter Thiel withdrew everything from SVB and announced it. That right there lit the blaze. We are watching a controlled burn. And that's what I, I sincerely believe right now from everything we've seen. I think we're watching a controlled burn of some of these banks. And doesn't mean it's going to be painless. Doesn't mean there's going to be, there's not going to be some, some turmoil and uncertainty, but I, I think that this is a controlled burn that this is happening with some direction. And uh, I see, I've seen some fear that this is going to be used to try and usher in some global currency type thing, some CBDC or whatever it is. Um, and I, and I get I get why people think that. Um, and I would not put it past people on the left and the totalitarians, really the 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 statist. I wouldn't put it past them to try and use this crisis to their advantage. That's what they do. Right. That's what, that's what they, that's what people of the leftists do. They, they try and take advantage. They create crises and then try and take advantage of those crises, try to provide the solution for the crises they created. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not, wouldn't be surprised to see them offer that and try, but I'm not, I'm not too concerned that they're, I, I don't think they're going to be successful. So I have seen some rumbling about, they want some, they want more regulation. Why weren't these, these, we need to have more regulation on some of these banks to try and prevent this. But the problem is they weren't, we already have the regulations that are supposed to prevent this. These people, these people need, uh, we just need to enforce the regulations we already have or deregulate some of these things to allow smaller banks, medium sized banks to do better. Um, I did see a report that a lot of money has been coming out of some of these big banks and going to some of these smaller regional banks because people don't want to put their money in these giant banks who get involved in these types of risk. 
and uh, who they don't trust and they're worried about. They I've saw reports lots of deposits have been going in, been coming out of these big banks and going to regional banks and credit unions and smaller banks. So your local community bank, your money is going to be much better off there than in one of these high risk places like Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. That's not financial advice. That's just my understanding. And I'm sure by the time I finish this show, there's going to be even more news on this front. Um, it's pretty cool. If if I was on Devo Power Hour, I was going to, you know, I'd probably be talking about tonight or making the point that we've got this war, World War Three fear over here on one side, and then now we and we already had an economic, we already had economic concern. Now we have this financial bank concern. Um, I mean, things just seem more and more precipice You know, it's like it's like this precipice is like you think you're on the precipice and then you're like, you just keep getting, keep leaning over that precipice. 2023 is insane. All right. Um, music and fiction. Good morning. He writes SVB's BLM, FTX and DEI funding is also likely part of the investigation. Lots of shady stuff. That is right. Lots of shady stuff. Um, that's a that's a good point, Karma Patriot. You know, like if you if you get your the more local you get your stuff, the more accountability there is there is, right? More you put your money in other things, more local, the more actual influence you can have and the more control you have over there because you can actually go down to your bank and actually talk to the people who actually run the bank. You're not talking to somebody who's just a person that's part of a giant enterprise that's international. You can go to a bank that only has a few branches and you can actually have a one-on-one with people who make the real decisions at that bank. Um, you have a lot more influence with, with that. And there's, I think we all agree local is better. Um, all right. The other really big news today or yesterday is this drone incident. This is the other very precipice uh, like incident that's going on. That's really important. I think this story is really important because this is a very dangerous situation, but I also think I have a take on it that, um, well, I haven't seen, I haven't seen it anywhere else, but first let's just go over what happened. As far as we know, anyway, a Russian aircraft, an Su-27, one of my favorite aircraft, period, by the way. I think it's a gorgeous airplane, an absolutely gorgeous airplane. I've been in love with it since I was a kid, um, and I have got my first flight simulator. I thought I thought this aircraft was gorgeous, so I have, a, I have some affection for this aircraft. Um, a Russian Su-27 collided with a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone over the Black Sea. And if you don't know, this is what an MQ-9 Reaper, I mean, this is basically what they look like. It's a big, it's a big drone. This isn't a small drone. These drones are huge. They have about a 40 foot wingspan. So you're talking about a drone that has the wingspan of a bus, of a school bus. 
Um, so if you want to imagine how big this drone is, think of a school bus turned sideways. That's how big its wingspan is. And its body is about the length of a SUV or larger. It's a large drone. Um, and it's a very powerful, very highly, highly, highly advanced drone. We've been using them for years and they can carry armaments. I've seen some, uh, some talk about whether or not they're armed or not. We don't know if this one was armed, but they can be armed. But what they do is ISR, Intelligent Surveillance Reconnaissance. And we've been doing these flights, these ISR flights, um, which, where do I have that? This thing, is it this one? Yes. So I've shown these maps on this show before. Where um, this is this one right here is from the 20th of December, 2022 through January, 2023. These are all these different flights from different types of aircraft that are doing ISR. And this is public. These are the ones that are public where you can, tr you can track them on ADSB. Um, right here, down here of the public publicly tracked flights that these drones have been making. This is what, this is their path. And this is about what they've been doing for over a year. Now they've been in this area right here. Okay. Um, and they, what they do is they, they go back and forth right here, taking, taking images of aircraft, other aircraft and things on the ground. They can shoot out their radar and their sensors way, way far long way into Crimea and also looking at the black sea fleet. And they're doing, they're doing reconnaissance, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And it's been going on for well over a year. Not the first time that these flights have come up on this show. Probably not the last. But Russia is always is also operating aircraft in this area. It's a busy area. And to have a collision like what happened on one hand it's surprising, on the other hand it maybe was a matter of time considering how close air, our aircraft between the two countries have been getting to one another over the past year or so. Now, Subbrief here, who is a source I, I trust, he's, he does a good job. He writes, detailed breakdown of the... Oh, wait, that's the AUKUS deal. My bad. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, so first I have for you the U.S. statement. Super pro show. Guys, super pro show. Don't laugh. All right, so U.S. Euro Command... What they had to say is two Russian Su-27 aircraft conducted an unsafe and unprofessional intercept with a U.S. Air Force intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance unmanned MQ-9 aircraft that was operating within international airspace over the Black Sea today. At approximately 7.03 a.m., one of the Russian Su-27 aircraft struck the propeller of the MQ-9 causing U.S. forces to have to bring the MQ-9 down in international waters, meaning they it got damaged, it couldn't make it back to base, so they they tried to down it in the water and make it in international waters so that it could be recovered. Several times before the collision, the Su-27s, plural, dumped fuel on and flew in front of the MQ-9 in a reckless, environmentally unsound, and unprofessional manner. This incident demonstrates a lack of competence 
in addition to being unsafe and unprofessional. For some reason, for some reason, people really eyed in on this line about it being environmentally unsound. And I don't understand it other than for some reason we become easily triggered by the word environment and we shouldn't let that trigger us. It is literally true. Like it's literally bad to dump fuel into the ocean. And I think we can all agree that that that's not a good thing to do. And I'm not saying that aircraft don't dump fuel here and there. Like it's not like it's an irregular occurrence. Aircraft do dump fuel when they need to, but it's a literally true statement. So I think getting triggered over it is ridiculous. Like I, I really think it's ridiculous to see environmentally unsound and get and get triggered over it. Um, also, you can take it as it says environmentally unsound, and you're and people are taking it as a trigger word for climate change and things like that. When it's actually the environment, the environment that you're in, the environment that I'm in is I'm in my basement in my studio area. That's my environment. Your environment right now could be your office or your car. Like you can read this sentence and take it as environmentally unsound, meaning the environment, the area around the aircraft, it was unsound to act this way. I don't understand why people get triggered over this. And it triggers me. So, (laughs) but the SU-27's dumping fuel on it. I saw some people say that that's funny because it's like they're taking a piss on it. I get that. But how, but dumping fuel on another aircraft is a very dangerous thing to do. And it's definitely something that you do if you want to interfere with that aircraft or cause it to have problems and crash or disable it. It's, it ain't good. It's aggressive. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about it. It's aggressive. It's an act. Um, it's an aggressive act. So the statement goes on to say this incident follows a pattern of dangerous actions by Russian pilots while interacting with U.S. and allied aircraft over international airspace, including over the Black Sea. These aggressive actions by Russian aircrew are dangerous and could lead to miscalculation and unintended escalation. Now, taking the U.S. statement on this as is, just taking it as being truthful, okay? Let's just accept it like this. We don't have any other information to go on yet. Not a good incident. Not good. If it did go down the way that the U.S. statement says it did, and they have video of it, this drone has all sorts of cameras on it, Not a good situation. Oh, yeah. Let me grab the Russian statement. Now, the Russian statement, this is from Russian MOD, Ministry of Defense. On 14th March 2023 in the morning, the Russian airspace control systems have detected an American MQ-9 unmanned aerial vehicle flying over the Black Sea and near the Crimean Peninsula in the direction of the state border of the Russian Federation. 
the drone flew with its transponders off, violating the boundaries of the temporary airspace regime established for the special military operation, communicated to all users of international airspace, and published in accordance with international standards. That's point one. Fighter jets of the Air Defense Force on duty scrambled to identify the intruder. As a result of quick maneuvering around 9.30 a.m. Moscow time, the MQ-9 drone went into an unguided flight with a loss of altitude and collided with the water surface. The Russian aircraft did not use onboard weapons, did not come into contact with the unmanned aerial vehicle, and returned safely to their home field. So, the Russians say something different. The U.S. says that the Su-27s were flying dangerously. They were flying in front of the aircraft, very close, which, by the way, can cause an aircraft to lose control because you're in the wash, uh, the air wash and the jet wash of the aircraft in front of you. It disturbs the way that that drone would be flying. Um, you could even say, depending on how they did it, they could dump fuel on the MQ-9 and then hit their afterburner trying to ignite the fuel that is still on the surface of the drone. Like, it's dangerous flying. There's a number of ways that it could you could interfere with one aircraft by flying right in front of it. Um, they say they didn't do this. They intercepted it to, because this drone had its transponder off, is that it was in a place where it shouldn't be. Or was and it was flying in a way it shouldn't have been flying, and then it lost control on its own. That the MQ-9 drone lost control on its own, never contacted their aircraft, went into and fell into the sea, stalled out, whatever, had a problem, fell into the sea. I don't know who to believe. The Pentagon was asked during the press conference, Pentagon spokesperson was, was the aircraft armed? And he said, I'm not going to get into specific profile of this particular aircraft. I got to say that if it was unarmed, I think they would say so. But it's not actually, I mean, it's not a problem if the aircraft was flying with armaments. Um, it wouldn't be unusual for it to fly with arms or without, but it's not its mission profile that it's been engaging in over there. Hasn't been, hasn't been to be like, it's just ISR. I really liked what Matt Gates um, said without today's with, with today's loss here we go. Let me open this up. With today's loss of a U.S. Air Force MQ-9 Reaper drone in the Black Sea, we are once again reminded of the treacherous reality of our involvement in the Russia-Ukraine war. The United States of America has already been depleted of more than $100 billion for aid to Ukraine. Now we're losing precious American technology worth hundreds of millions of dollars like the MQ-9 Reaper. It is impossible to ignore the dire risk of total war with Russia as we teeter on the precipice a direct conflict. I am once again calling on Joe Biden to end our involvement in this war before the counting of lost dollars in this conflict becomes the counting of dead Americans in Ukraine. 
Excellent statement. Nick Schifrin, who is Foreign Affairs and Defense for PBS and uh, others, he says, U.S. military officials who watched the video of the drone incident tells me contact, quote, was not a controlled tap. The Russian pilot was barreling toward the drone, out of control, tried to pull away, but hit the propeller. Quote, not something you'd see a professional pilot do. It was amateur hour. All right, so the thing is here, the U.S. has this on video. And I'm sure the Russians have their own video from their aircraft. But their two statements don't match up. So one side is lying. I don't know who is lying. But I know what makes the most sense to me. What makes the most sense to me is what J.E. Dyer is getting it here. Near universal cause of accident is pilot error. Russians aren't so stupid. They actually wanted their flanker to hit a 40-foot drone loaded with fuel. I don't I don't think this was the the US statement reads like the air the SU twenty sevens are trying to interfere with the operation of the MQ nine, dumping fuel on it, flying in front of it, getting really close to it. They're trying to you know, in a way you might even think, and I said it kind of sounds like they were trying to take the drone down without shooting it. If you can take a drone down, if you can take another aircraft down without shooting it, there's some ambiguity. There's some deniability about what you are doing, right? The drone crashed. The I think, I don't know who, I don't know if anybody's recovered the drone, but the where it crashed, the Russians were the closest to it. And getting an MQ-9 drone would be a really good, get there's a lot of information they could reverse engineer from one of these drones um i'm not accusing them of doing this i'm just saying you could you could see that they were perhaps i mean it's plot it's possible it's possible they were trying to take the drone down without actually having to shoot it out and just say oops accident sorry knocked your drone out of the sky sorry it landed in our water we're going to pick it up We'll give it back to you later. After we've completely disassembled it, scanned it, learned everything we can about it, we'll give it back to you in a million pieces. Um, nobody's on board, so it's not like you hurt anybody. Dangerous situation. But on the other hand, the Russians... And also, if that was the case, the Russian statement makes more sense, right? They're denying, hey, no, there was just some quick maneuvering going on, and your drone lost control and crashed into the sea. Sorry about it, but we didn't do anything wrong. We even had weapons on board, and we didn't shoot it. If we wanted to take it down, we would have just shot it. Plausible deniability on the Russians' part. But there's video of it. There's video of the incident. And... 
the U.S. officials who have seen it say, no, this Su-27 dude was flying like an amateur and being reckless, and he crashed into our drone. Talking about two huge aircraft, very expensive, loaded up with fuel, high altitude, thin air. I think, personally, I would bet on this being an accident. An accident that was bound to happen with U.S. and Russian aircraft operating so close to one another on the daily Lots of intercepts, lots of interaction. There's been lots of videos of U.S. and Russian aircraft intercepting each other, flipping each other the bird, flying up real close and taking pictures of one another, wiggling their wings, like all sorts of stuff, doing flybys, doing stunts. Um, They can't, you know, we're not in a hot war with them, so they're not shooting each other down, but they're getting close to one another and thumbing their noses at each other. You do that enough times, the odds are eventually... There's going to be a collision. So, I mean, I just think, given what we know right now, I lean towards it being an accident. At some point, we may get to see the video, and the video may say, may show to us that, no, actually, this looks like really intentional. They intentionally hit the aircraft. But... There's no part of the Su-27 aircraft that you would want to hit the propeller of a 40-foot drone. Like put yourself put yourself in the in the seat of a Su-27. Put yourself in the in the seat of Su-27 and I mean, these these are Su twenty sevens are big aircraft. <laughs> these are not these are not tiny things. These are big aircraft. Put yourself in the seat of an Su twenty seven. We're talking about something that's similar to an F fourteen. Yeah. Um. And think about having a school bus, a flying school bus in front of you. Both of you tens of thousands of feet in the air. Both of you going hundreds of miles an hour. Both of you loaded up with fuel. You want to crash your aircraft into it? Are you are you going to are you going to try and tip your wing into a propeller? or the nose of your aircraft into the propeller? Once you hit that propeller, you don't know, you don't know how this aircraft is going to lose control. You could tap that propeller and this aircraft right here tumbles directly into you. I I don't th- I don't think it's on purpose. I think that they were effing around. I think they were effing around with this drone, seeing what would happen if they dumped fuel on it and if they flew in front of it and played all these games with it, trying to take it down without actually touching it. And then 
they screwed up and had a collision. I could be wrong, but right now I think that's the most I think that's the most rational explanation. You put your put yourself in this in this in this seat. I think it's I think that's the most rational explanation given the information that we have at this time. All right. I actually put this uh I want to move this real quick cuz I put that tweet in the wrong spot. Here we go. Dangerous incident. And we've had collisions before from things like this. Um, dangerous incident. Hopefully cooler heads prevail. Biden administration approves Willow Oil Project in Alaska, which has galvanized online activism. The Biden administration has approved the massive Willow Oil Drilling Project in Alaska, angering climate change advocates. The Willow Project is a decades-long oil drilling venture in the National Petroleum Reserve, which is owned by the federal government. The area where the project is plans holds up to 600 million barrels of oil. Though that oil would take years to reach the market since the project had yet yet to be constructed. By the administration's own estimates, the project would generate enough oil to release 9.2 million metric tons of planet warming carbon pollution. <laughs> Equivalent to adding 2 million gas powered cars to the roads. This is so bad. The left is not happy that Biden has approved this. And I'm over here like, yep, add that to the devolution notable pile. Add that to the things that you would expect the Trump administration to do that the Biden administration is doing. It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. And that's right, Snarky Dez. That's just what I thought when I read it. Like, oh, it's going to take a while to reach. I bet it's going to reach market right as the Trump administration is in the halfway through its second term, huh? It'll start having an impact there there at the latter part of the Trump administration. The next one. All right. Another thing that is very much, very much like something the Trump administration would do. Australia to buy up to five U.S. nuclear-powered submarines. Australia will buy as many as five U.S. nuclear-powered submarines and later build a new model with U.S. and British technology under an ambitious plan to beef up Western Western muscle across the Asia Pacific, Pacific, the Asia Pacific in the face of rising China. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> my air, my area of the South is wearing off on me where I'm saying specific instead of Pacific, the specific ocean. <laughs> President Joe Biden was hosting his Australian British counterparts, prime minister, Anthony Albanese and prime minister Rishi Sunak on a U.S. Naval base in San Diego, Australia, which joined the newly formed Alcus group with Washington and London 18 months ago, will not be getting nuclear weapons. However, the nuclear propulsion, with nuclear propulsion, the new submarine fleet will add substantial new strength to the Western alliance seeking to push back against China's own military expansion. 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 (laughs) I either need more coffee or less. I'll go for more. 
This is such a thing that the Trump administration would do. And I would tell you, I would argue that the Trump administration started this. This is the Trump administration's design. They came up, Trump administration came up with Alcus. Trump administration came up with Indo-PACCOM. Trump administration came up with beefing up the security of the nations of Australia, Philippines, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, India. The Trump administration is who has turned Taiwan into a porcupine. And the Biden administration has continued all of those policies. And everything about this deal pisses China off and is in the face of China's aggression. This is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect Biden to not do. From Subbrief, who is a good follower. He does really good videos on naval on naval stuff. Uh, detailed breakdown of AUKUS deal one. In 2023 and on, increased port visits by Virginia subs in Australia for orientation and training. Two, from 2023 and beyond, Australian shipyard construction improvements. Also, from 2023 and beyond, SSN Alcus submarine designed in the UK. From 2030 to 2033... Three Virginia-class submarines delivered to Australia with option to purchase two additional subs. And from 2035 to 2040, the first UK-constructed SSN Alcus submarine delivered to Australia. Six, 2040 and beyond, Australia completes first SSN Alcus submarine for the RAN. That's the Royal Australian Navy. He says, watch out, there are Twitter accounts adding disinformation to this post. Don't believe anything. Um, Subbrief is a good follow, by the way. I really like his content. He does good stuff. Um, good stuff, man. Just more contradictions. You start seeing these contradictions with the Biden administration, and it should make you wonder. It should make It should make you wonder. All right, next thing. Nice. I'm getting through some of this material a little bit faster than I thought I would. That means I have time for more. They seriously wouldn't do this, guys. I know that we're all supposed to be under the impression that it's Beijing, Biden, and China owns Joe, and everything Joe Biden does is because he's controlled by President Xi and China and all these things. But you see these contradictions and there's so many of them. It's like, I think those strings have been cut. I think those strings have been cut and things are not as they seem. Flying storm. Good morning. Thank you for the rant. I say seen a couple new ages class warships being built yesterday in the Bay of Michigan Bay. Beautiful. Those are beautiful and powerful ships. Occasionally, a number of times during the Joe Biden administration, we've sailed Aegis cruisers through the Strait of Taiwan in order to give the bird to the Chinese. <laughs> Something else you think that Biden would have stopped by now. All right. In the case, the grand jury that's been assembled that is supposedly out to get Trump, even though I don't believe that for a second, that that the DOJ is out to get Trump. I don't believe it for a second. I'll squirrel on that later, maybe. 
If you don't know why I think that, you probably are new to the show. Um, <laughs> we we may scroll into it later. In the grand jury that's overseeing the Trump inquiry, um, it has been by Chief Judge Beryl Howe. That's who's been the chief judge, and um, that's who's been authoring all these decisions. She's been there a very long time. She's about to step aside, and the gavel is going to pass to a new chief judge. The windows of the chambers of the chief judge of the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia overlook the Capitol grounds, a stately visit, blah, 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 blah. Chief Judge Beryl Howe has spent considerable time considerable time in the two years since ruminating on what happened outside her windows on January 6th. This is, supposed, this is supposed to make you really emotional, like, oh, January 6th was so bad, which it was, but not for the reasons they think it was. Um, she's about to step aside. Her term ends this week. So this isn't down the road. This is this week. This week, this change is happening. She's stepping aside and a new chief judge, James E. Bosberg, is taking over as chief judge and will take over the grand jury hearings. The two jurists will hold a passing the gavel ceremony this Friday, dropping Bosberg into tangled disputes over executive privilege and over grand jury issues central to this federal special counsel investigation into the events surrounding January 6th, along with Trump's handling of classified documents after leaving office. So this could have real consequences. This is a big, it's a big moment in this, uh, these grand juries and in the special counsel investigation, because you're going to have a new judge. These are really, really important decisions about executive privilege and apex doctrine and all sorts of things and forcing lawyers to testify or not. Um, Serious matter. And it's going to, it's going to have an impact. Now this guy, let's look at, let's look at who he is. Okay. Judicial service. In September 2002, Bosberg became an associate judge of the Superior Court of the District of Columbia, where he served in civil and criminal divisions and the domestic violence branch until his appointment to the federal bench in 2011. During the 111th Congress, Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton recommended Bosberg to fill a judicial vacancy to the United States District of Columbia. On June 17, 2010, President Obama formally nominated Bozberg to the district court for the District of Columbia. Bozberg was confirmed on March 14, 2011 by a 96-0 vote. He received his commission on March 17. Bozberg is considered a feeder judge, sending numerous clerks to the Supreme Court. On February 7, 2014, Chief Justice John Roberts announced that he would appoint Bozberg to the United States Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court for a term starting May 18, 2014, to a seat vacated by Reggie Walton. His term ended May 18, 2014. On December 20, 2019, the FISA court announced he will, re- they re- he will replace presiding judge January 1, 2020, and elevate to preside. So he's been presiding over the FISA court since January 1, 2020. His term as presiding judge and as presiding judge and judge of the FIC ended May 19th, 2021. 
In 2020, he was appointed to the United States Alien Terrorist Removal Court and designated chief judge. Now, notable rulings. Osama bin Laden photos. On April 26, 2012, Bozberg ruled that the public had no right to view government photos of a deceased Osama bin Laden. Judicial Watch, a conservative legal group, had filed a request under the Freedom of Information Act, but were unsuccessful in convincing the judge that FOIA rights outweighed national security factors. I'd be interested to... I'd be interested for this case to happen again. I'd be interested for somebody to sue under FOIA for those photos today, 10 years later, and see how that goes. I would also be interested if in Trump's second term, Trump declassifies those photos. I also want to throw out there that perhaps the reason there's a national security concern that outweighs FOIA is not because of the photo itself or photos themselves, but because the story, the official story of the death of Osama bin Laden is classified because it's not the story we know. Interesting case, though. I'd be inter- I'd be really interested for it to come up again. Yeah, Mermaid Miss K, nice to see you. Good morning. Mermaid Miss K says, because he died way before. That's what I think. <laughs> That's what I think, too. Yep. Yep. It'd be inter- it'd be interesting for it to happen again because I don't think it's about the photos that are- I don't think the photos themselves are the national security concern. I think it's the uh, I think it's something else. All right, registered tax return preparer regulations on January eighteenth, twenty thirteen. Bozberg issued a permanent injunction prohibiting the in- Internal Revenue Service from enforcing regist- regulations on registered tax return preparers which otherwise required tax return preparers to register with the IRS and pass a written test of evidence of competency. That was Loving versus IRS. The IRS appealed in 2014. The Court of Appeals upheld Bozberg's district court decision. Hillary Clinton emails. This one's really interesting. Hillary Clinton emails. On August 22nd, 2016. Bozberg ordered the release of over 14,000 emails found in the United States Department, United States Department of State correspondence of Hillary Clinton by the FBI during an investigation of Clinton's private server. These emails were requested by Judicial Watch, a conservative legal group, because the FBI had indicated that emails were work-related and not entirely private, as Clinton had previously said. So... I think I think that is extremely notable about Bozberg. He had the opportunity there to do a big, big favor for the Clinton crime syndicate, and he didn't. He ordered the release of those 14,000 emails. 
That's a big, big plus right there. Big plus. On August 18th, 2017, Bozberg dismissed a lawsuit from the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC, which had sued the IRS under FOIA, seeking President Donald Trump's personal tax returns from 2010 to the present to be released. Bozberg concluded that because personal tax returns are confidential, they may only be obtained either by permission from Trump himself or if Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation signed off to allow the disclosure. Well, we all know what ended up happening. We all know that Trump's taxes recently came out because the House fought to have them come out. And it set a precedent that now we're going to go after everybody else who wants to hold high office and force them to release their tax returns as well. Still a good decision here. Medicaid work. On March 27, 2019, Bozberg blocked a work requirement for recipients of Medicaid in Arkansas and Kentucky. I don't know the specifics of that one. It could be good or could be bad, but um, it also, uh, I don't know the specifics of it, but it could be, it could be a sound decision. Dakota Access Pipeline on March 25th, 2020, Bozberg ordered a sweeping new environmental review of the Army Corps of Engineers and Dakota Access Pipeline. In a subsequent decision on July 6, 2020, he vacated an easement to cross the Missouri River pending completion of an environmental review and ordered the pipeline to be emptied within 30 days. On August 5th, a three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals upheld his ruling regarding the easement. However, the judges vacated the order to empty the pipeline and asked the Army Corps of Engineers to submit a follow-up brief on whether they would allow the continued pipeline operation without easement. North, North Atlantic right whale. On April 9th, 2020, Bozberg issued an opinion finding that the National Marine Fisheries Service violated the Endangered Species Act when it issued a biological opinion in 2014 allowing for the accidental killings of North Atlantic right whales, of which only about 400 remain as of April 8th, 2020, which consists of seven areas spanning the East Coast, Maine, and North Carolina. All right. I got no problem with that. But that one right there with Hillary Clinton emails, I think that speaks volumes about, about this guy. I think that speaks volumes. So this guy will take over Friday. And I, I was kind of thinking, you know, it, it's possible it might introduce some lag time in the, uh, in these grand jury investigations as he catches up with the arguments and gets himself prepared to, Handle these grand juries. I don't know. He may have already been briefing on this. I mean, it kind of makes sense. He may have already been leaking, been looking in on how and reading statements in there and briefing himself ahead of this handover. That makes sense that that's going on, but I don't know that it is. Um, but this could introduce a lot of lag in the uh, special or a delay in the special counsel investigation. Uh, that'd be Smith. We have three special counsels right now, which is awesome. Okay, got that, got that, got that. Let's go to this. All right, so there's another, yet again, the walls are closing in on Trump story going around.
what we know about the Donald Trump Stormy Daniels payment case. This is the latest walls are closing in on Trump. He's going to go to jail, blah, blah, blah. He's going to get indicted, blah, 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 whatever. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's investigation into former President Trump's role in hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels, an adult film actress, appears to be winding down. The case involves a $130,000 payment made during the frenetic 2016 presidential campaign. A former Trump lawyer and fixer who served time in prison and a prosecutor who could seek criminal charges against a former president now running for office once again. Here's a guide to the basics. Who is Stormy Daniels and how is she tied to Trump? Stormy Daniels, whose real name is Stephanie Clifford, is an adult film actress who told people that she had an affair with Donald Trump years before he won the presidency in 2016. In her telling, Daniels met Trump at a celebrity golf tournament in 2006 and had sex with him. Trump has denied any affair. The issue surged into national view in 2018 when the Wall Street Journal reported that Trump's longtime personal attorney, Michael Cohen, had negotiated a secret payment to ensure her silence on the issue shortly before the 2016 election. Who is Michael Cohen and how does he fit in? Michael Cohen is a former personal lawyer for Trump who has turned into a staunch critic of the former president. Cohen acknowledged in 2018 that he paid hush money to Daniels. That same year, Trump told reporters aboard Air Force One that he did not know about the payment. Rudy Giuliani, the former New York mayor and turned Trump lawyer and also fellow DOJ asset, just like Trump, later said that they're kind of like Batman and Robin later said that the former president had repaid Cohen. Trump, in turn, admitted reimbursing Cohen, saying in a string of Twitter posts that the lawyer received a monthly retainer, which was used to stop the false and extortionist accusations made by her about an affair. While Trump was in office, he and Cohen underwent a rather public rupture. That included Trump calling his former lawyer a rat and a weak person. While Cohen called the former president a cheat, a liar, a fraud, a bully, a racist, a predator, a con man. (laughs) Cohen served time in prison after pleading guilty in two criminal cases, including one that involved campaign finance violations related to Daniels and another woman who alleged an affair with Trump. In that case, when Cohen pleaded guilty in 2018, he pointed a finger directly at Trump. Cohen said he had been acting at Trump's direction, saying the payments to the women were aimed at influencing the looming 2016 election by keeping their stories from becoming public. Prosecutors said that the payments were campaign finance violations, including making excessive contributions to Trump's campaign. At the time, an attorney for Cohen issued a statement questioning why the payments were criminal for Cohen, but not Trump. How many women did did Clinton pay off? during his presidential campaigns. I wonder what is this $130,000 payoff that keeps getting mentioned? The $130,000 payment is how much Cohen paid Daniel so that that number will get brought up a lot in stories about the issue. Who is investigating the issue and what is the status? Bragg, the elected Manhattan prosecutor had convened a grand jury to look at business-related matters involving Trump. That included Trump's role in the hush money payments made to Daniels. 
Bragg, a Democrat, assumed the role at the beginning of 2022, and he has faced public pressure over his office's handling of Trump-related issues. Two veteran prosecutors in the office resigned in protest last year, feeling frustrated that Bragg would not authorize them to seek an indictment against Trump. Bragg later issued a statement saying criminal probes of Trump's business practices were still ongoing. The investigation into Trump's business-related issues appeared to gain traction in recent months after seeming dormant for much of last year. Bragg convened a grand new, jur- a new grand jury this year to hear evidence focused largely on the Daniels issue. All right, now what could happen going forward and what kind of charges could Trump face? Bragg is examining whether Trump broke campaign finance laws with his manner of reimbursing Cohen. Cohen appeared before the grand jury Monday, and prosecutors have invited Trump to speak to the group as well, which could say no that the investigation is winding down. That's what they want you to think anyway. Okay. This is silly. Prosecutors invited Trump to speak to to the grand jury. I don't... I don't think people get invited to speak to grand juries. I think they get subpoenaed. And Trump hasn't been subpoenaed. It remains unclear whether Bragg will seek an indictment, which is a formal document outlining crimes that the grand jury believes someone committed. Legal analysts say such a criminal case could face potential hurdles, describing it as unusual for a local prosecutor to prosecute a presidential candidate for violating state campaign finance law. A criminal case against Trump in the matter could also face another hurdle, relying at least somewhat on testimony from Cohen, who has pleaded guilty to, among other things, lying to Congress. How has Trump responded to Daniel's allegations? Well, Trump has pilloried Bragg in his investigations, grouping them in with other inquiries examining the former president and denounced it as unfair. He has also denied having an affair with Daniels and insulted her appearance. (laughs) Yeah, I think he's called her a horse face. Is this the only active investigation involving Trump? No, it's not. (laughs) Trump is currently facing investigations related to his handling of classified material at Mar-a-Lago, his formal, his Florida home, his private club, and his attempts to block Joe Biden from taking office. Trump has announced that he is running for president again in 2024 and his advisors have said they are preparing campaign. They are preparing to campaign while he is facing potential criminal charges. Look, this is an okay article. I got to admit, I got to admit guys, I know it's WAPO, but that's an okay article with just some bare bones information about what's going on with this. Um, Also from WAPO, prosecuting Trump for Stormy Daniels money would include hurdles, experts say. So I want want you to note this. WAPO ran this article on March 14th saying, okay, here's what we know about the Trump and Stormy Daniels payment case. And it's by Mark Berman and Shana Jacobs. The day before, Shana Jacobs said, look, guys, you need to understand there's some hurdles here and 
I see this as WAPO putting up a signal flare saying, might not happen. There might not be an indictment. They're preparing the ground for everybody to once again learn, all their readers to once again be disappointed. Ah, Trump got away again. Because that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. He's not going to get indicted. The problems are Bragg is going to have to rely on testimony from Cohen, who is a liar and a Trump critic anyway. Um, Trump's lawyers would easily undermine his, uh, undermine Cohen's testimony and credibility. No former president has ever been indicted for a crime, so it would be a precedent. Though many political candidates and other officers or holders have been charged, and for some it's not derailed their political careers. Bragg has given Trump until Thursday, tomorrow, to say whether he wants to appear in front of the grand jury. An opportunity available to targets of an investigation in state court in New York if that person's attorney knows about a grand jury and notifies the district attorney that they want to be invited. Legal experts have said that extending the grand jury invitation to a potential defendant is typically the last thing that happens in a grand jury probe. It is considered very risky for any defendant to testify in a grand jury proceeding. I would. It sure would be fun if Trump goes and testifies. It'd be secret. I mean, it's not like we get to see it, but. I know, might be kind of fun. Trump attorney demands investigation of Manhattan's DA probe. Now, here's something really interesting. Attorney Joseph Tacopina told New York City's Department of Investigation Commissioner Jocelyn Strauber in a letter Friday, last Friday, that the actions of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, quote, are a blatant and unconstitutional attempt to interfere with a federal election by attempting to prosecute President Trump to make him unable to run for re-election. Former lead prosecutor Cyrus Vance, Kerry Dunn, and Mark Pomerantz attacked Trump, quote, purely for personal and political reasons, and the fight continued after they left, and District Attorney Alvin Bragg took over the office. He also argues the district attorney's office has wasted taxpayer dollars in its attempt to prosecute Trump. The Trump organization was found guilty in December of criminal tax fraud and later fined $1.6 million. The Manhattan district attorney's office is still investigating hush money payments to Trump or made by Trump. Allegedly. The Stormy Daniels. Now. This right here. Here's his letter. From Joe Tacopina. I don't. Well, here, let me read Trump's statement first. Trump says, I did absolutely nothing wrong. I never had an affair with Stormy Daniels, nor would I wanted to ha want to have an affair with Stormy Daniels. This is a political witch hunt trying to take down the leading candidate by far in the Republican Party, while at the same time also leading all Democrats in the polls, including Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Congress and numerous Dem Democrat district attorneys, attorneys general, and the Department of Injustice itself which has unprecedentedly 
placed top DOJ prosecutors in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in order to get Trump. They have found that I did nothing wrong. Now they fall back on the old and rebuked case, which has been rejected by every prosecutor's office that has looked at this. This stormy, horse-faced Daniels matter. I told you he called it horse-faced. Where I relied on counsel in order to resolve this extortion of me, which took place a long time ago. Since then, I have won lawsuits for hundreds of thousands of dollars against Stormy Daniels. In every prosecutor's office which has looked at it, which are numerous, including the FEC, have turned this fake case down. This is not a state case. It is a federal case, and they have all passed on it. Even the previous Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance, did not bring charges because I am guilty of nothing except for the fact that I am beating all Republicans and Democrats badly in the presidential race. It is Russia, 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 Ukraine, 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 the no collusion Mueller hoax and other targeted false attacks against me all over again. It is a weaponization of our judicial system. And I am shocked that this Soros backed radical left prosecutor who has allowed violent crime to reach new heights in New York without any retribution would consider bringing such a charge against the undisputed front runner of one of the two major political parties in our nation. Additionally, the statute of limitations has long since ended. In fact, radical left media one and a half years ago did a countdown on the statute of limitations, which was allowed to expire. The countdown ended and until now, nobody had any idea that it was allowed to continue in this one lowball office. It is appalling that the Democrats would play this card. and only means that they are certain that they cannot win. They can't win at the voter booth, so they have to go to a tool that has never been used in such a way in, order, in our country. It's weaponized law enforcement. I and hundreds of millions of American people who are backing me because they want to see our nation do be great again, are the victims of this corrupt, depraved, and weaponized justice system. Where Hunter Biden and his father can commit horrendous crimes, all accurately documented on his laptop, and nothing happens. But with me, after looking at 11 million pages worth of documents, they go after a hoax that every other prosecutor's office which reviewed it, and even the U.S. Congress has long ago dropped. I will not be deterred. I will always continue to be your voice and I will keep fighting for our great country. That's it. Those walls just won't close in, guys. They're not going to close in. And Mean Gene One, who is a great follow on Twitter, says, at this point, has anyone not met with the Manhattan DA because they've called in former daughter-in-law? Look at this. They called in the former daughter-in-law of the Trump organization's ex-chief financial officer. Like, they're, they're, they've been trying to subpoena everybody they possibly could. Um, oh, wow. Over on Foxhole, we had some troll come in, and they got... I don't, let me see what I, what I can, what can I do here? Let's say, and boot. There we go. Um, I see some people say that I, that we disconnected for a moment. Everything's good on my end, but it may be a, uh, um, maybe a rumble problem if the number, number of you had a problem because everything looks good on my end. So I'm not worried about this guys. 
I'm sure y'all aren't either, but it's going to be the walls are closing in story for this week. Okay. don't think I have, I don't think I have enough time. I don't have enough time. Yeah. I definitely don't have enough time to present this, but I want to share something with y'all. This Substack from Pepe lives matter is really good. You can go to Pepe lives matter.substack.com. Look for this one right here. The creature from Jekyll Island. Very good Substack gives you the history of the Fed. It's got video clips, um, and it's it's just really good. If you're interested in the Fed, if you're interested in our monetary system and how corrupt it is, like this this Substack's really good. It's very timely for what's going on right now. I have time to read it, but I don't have time to play all the clips that are in it. So. I just I just wanted to toss this out there and give a shout out to Pepe Lives Matter because I just think it's a really good Substack, and um, you can I shared it on my socials. He of course shared it on his. Pepe Lives Matter Go give this a read, watch the video clips, and give it a share. It's really good. All right, this is going to be the last thing. I've had this, you may have noticed on the shows, I've had this McGonagall folder. Um, I've like, I've been moving this folder. I mean, I probably put it in the shows all the way back on number 180. So I've just been moving this folder from show to show to show, and I've never been getting to it during the show. Today, I'm going to get to it. Hunter Biden's link to disgraced XBI, XFBI official, Charles McGonagall. All right, blah, 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 FBI, reputation problems. Charles McGonagall is the biggest indictment in at least 20 years, as far as FBI officials go. But he's connected to Hunter Biden. In twin indictments last month, McGonagall was charged with taking secret cash payments from a former Albanian intelligence officer, holding secret meetings with Albanian Prime Minister Eddie Rama and attempting to remove top Kremlin oligarch Oleg Deripaska from a U.S. sanctions list. He was getting paid off by Oleg Deripaska. The Albanians cited by prosecutors tie this scandal to Hunter Biden and the Chinese energy company CEFC that paid him and his uncle Jim Biden millions of dollars in a deal with Joe Biden and was slated to join after vice presidency ended. According to prosecutors, McGonagall received $225,000 in cash in the fall of 2017 while he was the FBI's counterintelligence chief in New York from an Albanian former intelligence official, identified in the Albanian European media as Agron Neza. In return, Neza introduced McGonagall to another well-connected Albanian, Dorian Ducca, who was an advisor to Rama and also worked for CEFC. 
A photograph published last month in Albanian media sourced from China Daily in May 2017 shows Ducca standing with CEFC chairman Ye Jianming, who famously gave Hunter a 3.16 carat diamond estimated to be worth $80,000 in February 2017. Ye also put Hunter on a $1 million legal retainer in mid-2017, which ultimately was paid to assist CEFC colleague Patrick Ho after his arrest. Someone with the same unusual first name as Ducca appears in Hunter Hunter's abandoned laptop in an email discussion about CEFC between Hunter and associate James Gilliar and Rob Walker. Dorian was a real help early on, so we should consider how we include him, Gilliar wrote in a May 13, 2017 email. No way, we don't do it, replies Hunter, and if, major- if majority says no, I'll take it out of my salary. This was uncharacteristic generosity from Hunter who at the time was crying poor to his business partners and demanding a larger cut of the profits. Hunter wouldn't give up a penny, says a source, who believes that Dorian mentioned could be that the that the Dorian mentioned in the email could be Ducca, as Gillier had been doing business for CEFC in Albania. Quote, so Hunter saying he would pay Dorian is a demonstration of strong ties. Now, why were the Albanians paying McGonagall? According to Belen Kalici, the opposition Democratic Party candidate for May's mayoral election in Tirana, Albania, McGonagall opened FBI investigations into political opponents of Albanian Socialist Party Prime Minister Rama, probes used to declare them persona non grata, unable to do business or open a bank account in the U.S., About a dozen opposition politicians or business people supporting the opposition party were added to the McGonagall blacklist. That included former opposition leader Sali Barisha, who was slapped with persona non grata status and forbidden to travel to the U.S. by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Last weekend, the McGonagall scandal played a starring role in an anti-government protest in Albania in front of the main government building calling for Prime Minister's resignation for alleged corruption because of his meetings with McGonagall. Placards with the former FBI agent's name were ubiquitous. Hunter's connection with the FBI also were a topic of discussion among his business partners. One source recalls being told about a conversation that occurred sometime between July and September 2017, in which Hunter was asked by Chairman Yi of CEFC if he could discuss if he could discover through his FBI or DOJ contacts if Yi or Ho were targets of an FBI probe. Hunter then reported back to Yi that the two, and I don't know if it's Yi or Ye, I don't know. The two were in the clear and were not being investigated. So the the idea there is, was Hunter's contact McGonagall? Chairman Yi was livid that Hunter's intelligence was wrong because soon after that in November, Ho arrived in the U.S. and was arrested by FBI agents at JFK Airport. 
And remember, Hunter freaked out about that on, on the tapes. He specifically asked Hunter to look into whether Patrick Ho or he was a target. Hunter goes back to Chairman Yi and says no. Ho then flies into the U.S. and is detained at JFK. People went ape shit. Whoever Hunter talked to at the FBI lied to him and said Ye and Ho were not targets. We know Hunter had at least one mole in the FBI because New York lawyer Edward Kim, to whom Hunter offloaded the legal work to assist Ho after his arrest, asked Hunter in an email if he could lean on his FBI contacts. Quote, if you're able to find the names of the FBI agents you spoke with, that would be helpful, Kim wrote to Hunter on November 18, 2017, in response to Hunter's request that his firm act for Ho. At that time, McGonagall was in charge of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York. That office conducted the arrest. A tenuous link also exists between Hunter and McGonagall in their personal lives, as their names appear together as recipients of 20 time, 29 lacrosse match emails referring to their then-teenage daughters from a posh D.C. school attended by Hunter's children at the time when McGonagall was working at the FBI Washington field office. There is no evidence they met at that time. McGonagall left the Bureau in September 2018 after a former mistress reportedly spilled the beans to his boss about bags of cash lying around his Brooklyn apartment. But ironically, he was one of the well-connected experts tapped by the Atlantic council before the 2020 election to warn about Russian interference on behalf of president Donald Trump. At the time he allegedly was taking money from Deripaska. McGonagall, a protege of former FBI chief James Comey, yeah, right, also was involved in the bogus FBI investigation into Trump-Russia collusion. As section chief for the Cyber Counterintelligence Coordination Section at the FBI DC field office, he reportedly was instrumental in opening the original Crossfire Hurricane probe. After he moved to New York one month after the 2016 election, McGonagall also reportedly was involved in the fraudulent surveillance warrants on Trump campaign aide Carter Page. While both GOP and Dem lawmakers are trying to spin the McGonagall scandal in their own political favor, there is nothing FBI Director Chris Ray can do to restore the public's... Oh, gosh, I shouldn't have even read that paragraph. It's bullshit. Um, McGonagall's involvement in the beginning of the Crossfire Hurricane probe and then again in the Carter Page surveillance warrant are the two key things that make me think this should have been a Durham indictment. And because it wasn't, I now find myself thinking, did Durham hand this off to SDNY because he's got something bigger? And I've thought that since the beginning when I first read the indictment, that this seems not the D.C. one, the D.C. one with Albania, no, but the New York one with Oleg Deripaska. It seems to me like this would have been an indictment that would have been in Durham's wheelhouse and that Durham could have chased down. And I'm thinking he didn't. And I'm thinking he didn't. And he just handed it off to SDNY, 
Or maybe they developed it on their own and took it to Durham and Durham said no. But I think it's because Durham's working on something much bigger. And it, and it also makes me wonder if we might see a couple more of these where DOJ does their own indictments of individuals because Durham has something bigger that he's working on. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And I think this, I'm, I'm really into this McGonagall case because it's, I think it's absolutely massive. Um, and I'm annoyed by talk of, Oh, there's nothing that can be done to restore the FBI's reputation and all this stuff. When this is how you restore it, this is how you restore it. You prosecute corrupt FBI agents. And this guy was chief of counterintelligence in the FBI's New York field office. It doesn't get much bigger than that. It doesn't get much bigger as far as FBI agents go. This guy was at the top, not a director, but a chief. This is how you restore the reputation as you go after these corrupt guys. Now, I've mentioned this before, I believe. Wendy Segelman has put together this document that, that contains all these connections. Um, and Dawson writes about it. Good to see some focus on Lord Barker of Battle. No, seriously, that's his title. There are many reasons the UK swamp tried to protect the US and Russian swamp creatures. In 2018, the New York Times aided Putin's oligarch Oleg Deripaska threatening to expose the swamps in the UK and US if they did not shut down Mueller's investigation of his role in 2016. Everyone involved in the effort to frame Trump was working for Deripaska. Everyone in Spygate was working for Oleg. The colluders, Manafort's and Gate, Manafort and Gates, they were getting paid by Oleg Deripaska. That's a fact. The investigators, Steele and Simpson, it's a fact. They were getting paid by Deripaska. Dirty officials like McGonagall, McCabe, Bruce Orr, paid by Deripaska. Politicians like Hillary and McCain, paid by Deripaska. Lobbyists like Adam Waldman, paid by Deripaska. Over here at News Tracks is what it's called. Wendy Siegelman has put this together. Really good resource to bookmark here if you want to follow this case slowly or closely, or you can just follow my coverage. I'm going to do my best to cover it as it goes on. She has compiled this information, the FARA filings by Shestakov and McGonagall, the indictments and what counts are in them. McGonagall's business partnership registered in Albania, subpoenas related to McGonagall in Albania. Now, really nice right here, special agent in charge of counterintelligence highlights note there is no known connection between the two, but Giuliani announced Trump backers had a couple of surprises left in October 25th. Giuliani indicated he had inside 
information from the FBI about Clinton emails. I'm not sure exactly what she's putting that in there. And then remember, Oleg got Oleg Deripaska was indicted not too long ago. And I covered it on this show. Not for his role in Spygate, but for sanction evasion. But you start you start looking at how all these things are coming together. There sure are a lot of swamp creatures. There sure are a lot of swamp creatures who are being investigated or and or indicted right now. And that brings me to a lot a larger point. It goes along with the banks. It goes along with what's happening with the banks, but it's not just with the banks. It's also in the justice area. Q alerts over on true social wrote this the other day. What's better than a controlled demolition of the entire corrupt swamp temple? Well, it's having your enemies bring it down themselves onto their own effing heads. Brilliant. Nice job, Patsies. Now he wrote this pointing at the banks and he's spot on, but I've made the point before and I'm going to continue to make it that Trump being out of office right now had to happen. And while he's out of office, we're seeing exposure, disclosure and justice against his enemies, against the swamp. You've got Deripaska and McGonagall, and you got Durham indicting all these people and having their trials and continuing. You have all of this stuff going on while Trump is out of office. It's the Biden administration who is supposedly doing it. It's the Garland DOJ who is doing it while conservative media cries and puts up all these narratives about how everything is corrupt and we're all going to hell. And Joe Biden administration is letting People get away with whatever they want. There's no justice. It's the injustice department. It's the FB lie. All of that narrative is shielding that there is exposure, disclosure, and justice. It's all this narrative shielding going on. And then you start digging for details and you looking at look at actuals and you start seeing all the justice that is happening. There was another major human trafficking bust this past weekend, I believe, or maybe it was last week. Barely got any notice in the media. There's there's so much going on. Everything is happening. That's right. Just like Chris Paul says, everything is happening. And as I detailed on a show um, not too long ago, I think it was last week, but I don't really remember right now. I think it was last week, um, that you look, yeah, it was last week. You look at all the, um, what Task Force Klepto Capture is doing, and the Russians they're going after after are Russian oligarchs that are swamp monsters, and most of them have donated to Hillary Clinton. And the Clinton Foundation. And we're involved like Vexelberg, involved in Uranium One and Clinton Foundation. It's just the more you look, the more you see that, hey, these are all people you would think the Trump administration would be indicting and going after. So, man, things are things are not what they seem. And I know what the popular narratives are in conservative media. 
And I, I do feel like they're supposed to be that way. I do feel like they're supposed to be that way, but I also feel like we can, we can see past them and, and seeing past them, we can, uh, we can develop a lot more, a lot more sense of hope and actually a better read on what is going on. I think, I don't think it's just hope in a white pill. I think it's a more accurate read on what is going on. So, um, there was one more thing I was going to say about this case about McGonagall. Hold on just a moment. The next date, the next key date that is coming up in it. Let's see. Is it this link, pull this link up. Come on. Oh, it's going slow. Oh, it says it's down. Oh yeah, it says court listener is down. All right, well I remember it anyway. Um so they just had a status conference in the McGonagall case. Um it was either last Friday or it was on Monday. They had a, they had a, a status conference in the McGonagall case. Seth Ducharm, which who is a Bill Barr buddy, who is went to, with Durham and Bill Barr to Italy investigating Spygate. It's no coincidence that Seth Ducharm is McGonagall's lawyer, his attorney, he's from Bracewell. Bracewell is used to be called Giuliani and Bracewell. No coincidence there. I don't think it's because Seth Ducharme is crooked. I think it's because McGonagall is being handled because he's busted big time. He's being handled and he's, I don't know if he's going to take a plea, but I think it's, I think he's, he's going to give up the goods. Um, They had a status conference and the next status conference is going to be in May. If I recall correctly, the trial is tentatively scheduled for October of this year. But the next status conference is in May. So between now and May, we could get some interesting filings like discovery and stuff. Um, but the next date that is of note is is coming up in May. Um, so this one may kind of fade away and there may not be any news on it for a little while. I'm going to keep checking it out. I think it's super important and also, I think it's an open goal as far as media is concerned and citizen journalists. I think it's an open goal to cover this case because it's going to expose so much corruption within the FBI, which supposedly people on the right care so much about. Um, I don't really understand why more attention isn't on McGonagall, but we'll see. Maybe more attention will develop onto it. So. All right, fam. That is my show for today. Links to uh, find me on social media are in the description over on Rumble or just find my link tree on my profile and you'll find all my links. And uh, if you like the show on Rumble, give it a thumbs up, give it a share wherever you're watching, leave a comment and y'all have a great day. Remember, I'm going to be out of town on Friday, so I won't be able to do a show, but I'll be around. I'll be around on social media and stuff. And uh Yeah. I hope y'all have a great one. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. See ya.
Ne me quittez 